Hey friends, welcome to Mastication Nation. We're going to eschew our normal alphabetic ramblings this week because we want to pay respects to somebody that uh, has influenced both of our lives significantly uh, and is no longer with us, and that's that's Anthony Bourdain, who sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago. And uh, people come and go, but I think in terms of... He's probably responsible in a roundabout or even direct way for the birth of this show and, and many other things that, that you and I will both hold so near and dear. Absolutely. Yeah. There, I, I think you've mentioned in the post that Attaché wouldn't have existed without, uh, without your influence from Bourdain. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, I think, um, it absolutely wouldn't. I think everything we did with Attaché, all 27 episodes so far, we've sort of held against the Bourdain, not that we were ever trying to sort of go, we could be as good as Bourdain. Uh, but it's sort of, you know, is this something that Anthony Bourdain would do or, you know, that the writing, all of that, but we, we can circle back to that. I, I don't want this to be a, a, a somber or even macabre or, or melancholy episode. I think it's it should be it should be celebratory, but it is unbelievably sad, and it's I think it's it's incredibly untimely that uh, you know that we that we lost him, and we certainly won't dwell on the the circumstances or reasons of his of his passing. But what surprised me about his his death was how many people were so upset and heartbroken and and came out of the woodwork to to voice it i, I think and I, I kind of tweeted about this being like you know he was my hero and he, he absolutely was but th- i think the statement was that, that i sort of thought about over the last week or so was um your heroes it hurts most when you hit, need your heroes the most like you need yeah. like where the world we're in right now you needed someone like anthony bourdain and I think that's what yeah. hurt the most about all of this. Yeah, and no, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it was like watching a little bit of an explosion go off and send its ripples across the world because everybody came out of the woodwork. Yeah, from Not le- just leaders in- of the world to like mom and pop. Yeah. I would never have known. Like our own mother reached out to us and was like, I know this means a lot to you. I was like, how do you even know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think – a lot of people message me going, I, you know, I know, I know Anthony Bourdain was a, was a big, uh, uh inspiration to you. And uh, I'm sure this is, this is difficult. Yeah. And of course it is, but you're right. Like Barack Obama and of course the entire culinary world, but people, people outside of that, comedians and artists and, and politicians and authors were either influenced by him or just liked his content or, or appreciated the stance he took most recently with uh, the, the the Me Too movement. I, I was I was surprised, but because he is on the face of it, or was on the face of it, quite a divisive character. But he actually, it turns out, wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> he had strong opinions, and we can touch on that later because I think it's worth discussing kind of his stances on a few things, but. He he had strong opinions. He voiced them strongly, but it turns out that they were very very popular opinions. Yeah, and he and he was and towards the end of the series or the seasons of, of Parts Unknown, you know, you can watch the sort of chronological or like watch all his content from start to finish, and what you'll see in the last I'd say three to four series is something that I think the world needs a lot more of. Is just like you may have your strong opinions. Listen, listen before you talk. And he would talk to people from all walks of life, and he still would have very, very strong opinions about it and would say, okay, you know, I disagree with you, but I've taken a chance to at least listen to you. Yeah, and I, I think um, he, his his pithiness was one of his gifts, but one of the things that he said that 
made me uh, one of the many things he said that kind of made me go, actually, Alex, you're a little bit of an asshole for thinking the way you do. This is probably a, a good thing to listen to to challenge was I don't have to agree with you to like you or respect you. Yeah. I, I'm I'm a bit too too dumb to separate. I disagree with you, therefore I must like you. Or I must dislike you. I must hate you with every fiber of my being. Uh, and I think that 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 wisdom and that pithiness was reflected in his ability to break bread with people who he had fundamental philosophical and political differences with. Yeah, like who did he call Uncle Ted? Ted Nugent, who diametrically is opposed to everything that Bourdain stands for. And even he came out of the woodwork and was like, he was a great friend to me, even though we disagree on 99% of things, we still got on and had beers together. Like that's the, t- yeah. the level of it. Yeah, and I think that that takes... I'm sure that he didn't come to that as sort of a holier-than-thou approach and yeah, probably shared the same reticence to break bread with people he disagreed with that I think all of us do. I think that just comes with experience. But the West Virginia episode recently, most this season of Parts Unknown, I think showed admirable restraint in in an environment that – Actively hostile. Actively hostile and also, you know, filled with with people who he knew were politically and uh, and culturally, perhaps even morally, different from him. But he still got on with, and you know, they were good people. And I think that was the that was the what I think one of the things that Parts Unknown especially did so well was separate the people from the politics. Uh, and the food from the politics and the, you know, the, the identity, the, the national identity from the, from the individual identity, which, which I admired and have tried to emulate ever since on, on a personal level, not with any of the nonsense content that I create. But going, <laughs> I'm going to a country that I know hates my country, but these people are really friendly. What the heck's going on? Yeah. And that always reminds me of something dad said before I sort of set off as a young, late teenager to go traveling for a while, which was, and our father has been to so many different countries in very, very trying circumstances. And a lot of them when he was in the military, he basically sat me down after a couple of red wines and said, well, people may be assholes, but individual people are not. And it was like, you know, you, you know, a country may hate you, but if you're stuck in a situation, an individual person, humanity is still there. And so, like, I, I see that with what everything he, with everything Bourdain did. Um, but I want to roll it back a little bit and, and, and hit on one of our usual, uh, tropes on this show. Um, to make this a bit of an Irish wake, I guess, um, I am drinking. So, um, <laughs> you know, I do want to hit on that. So I'm popping one right now, but, um, I do want to point out that I went and grabbed some food before recording, and I was like, what What would make sense to eat? So I went and grabbed some really good French bread, some really good brie, and a Miller High Life. And the, and the reason is like really good bread, really good cheese, that obviously makes sense for Bourdain, but a Miller High Life is the champagne of beers. It is a uh, celebratory <laughs> beer. And also, it's like, whether you're a hipster or you're a you know, regular Joe or not a beer snob or whatever, everybody loves Miller High Life. So I thought that was the most appropriate drink to have while we record. Yeah, I think that's pretty funny. And I think that's absolutely true. And actually, it, it got me thinking because one of the, I don't even know, silver linings, is that right? Without being trite, of his passing is that all of this content has resurfaced. All these interviews, all these articles, all of these 
these uh you know stuff that was originally left on the cutting room floor all these reflections so you there's just been this wealth of uh of bourdain related content or or penned by him and one of them that uh that came out that i rather enjoyed reading and it's appropriate to this is his thing about i think it was on the thrillist about craft beer <laughs> oh i know it yeah uh and 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 generally um his his uh you know he doesn't really like the the beer snobs and the craft beer uh, and that he likes a, a cold beer, as do I. And weirdly, I only drink beer when I'm filming with Greg. <laughs> Greg brings that out in me. Uh, so I'm also doing the same. I'm drinking an ice cold Budweiser. <laughs> That's amazing. We got an ultra American on this. Yeah, I think it was appropriate. And I made for my it's Father's Day here, and I um, weirdly I had to cook my own dinner, but uh, <laughs> I uh, I made myself uh, cacio e pepe, which actually was. A friend of mine, Ron Richards, asked him, uh, who he met Anthony Bourdain a few times, asked him, you know, when you're when you're drunk or or tired or whatever, you, what do you make? And that was what he said. So I uh, I made that, and it was good. That's a great way to spend the Father's Day. Yeah, I like cooking, so it wasn't exactly a a chore to me. Well, I mean, that kind of nicely brings us to you like cooking, I like cooking. I kind of want to spin, go back to the very beginning, and I know that mm. I can trace my my roots with Bourdain. And um, did you go back and you know sort of figure out how? It oh yeah, I, I I I absolutely know. Okay, I absolutely know. But I know that yours, oh, well, yours by by the definition of mine was first. Okay, so I'm interested to hear. So yeah, um, I was dating my girlfriend now wife Kate, um, and it was 2006. So Kitchen Confidential came out in early 2000. So I was, you know, not entirely late to the game because it was a global powerhouse in its own sense. But I guess I only got into him because I was at Kate's parents' place in, in Massachusetts and TV was on and it was a teaser commercial for Anthony Bourdain, No Reservations on the Travel Channel. And it was teasing the, the Beirut episode. I think was the first episode I told you to watch as well. But but it was the episode where they'd gone to shoot a normal show and then the Civil War broke out uh, while they were filming. And I, I, I didn't know who this guy was. And it was just this teaser. And my wife, Kate at the time, um, said, you know, oh, I think you would be really into this guy. And I'm like, eh, American food travel stuff is all crap you know uh, it's not going to be good it's which be- at the time it was yeah it was garbage um and i was like fine 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 so i went and uh i think i found the episode online somewhere when i got back to oxford back to university and was just mesmerized by this because it was right when i was getting into filmmaking i lived with two who are now professional film filmmakers who were my, my best men and one of them is the filmmaker videographer for uh attache and so i understood the sort of guerrilla filmmaking style that that's that this episode then became and i was so you know not enchanted is the wrong word but in awe of this person who was able to keep unbelievable cool under pressure and so it became this leader amongst this group of people all while tying it back to food so i remember the next day walking into oxford and and just like looking at a bookstore and i found a an old copy of um kitchen confidential for like four pounds in in one of the bookstores and i probably read the whole thing in a day and like that's how i became aware of him 
Um, obviously I can rant on about the impact of that book later on and like, you know, everything else from there, but that's like the genesis. So I'm interested to hear like, you know, how you got into him as well. You. Really? Yeah, I, uh, of course. I, I remember you, you going on about this dude for years and just on and on and on and on and on. And I'd, I had a kid at the time, um, and I didn't have time for anything. And then, I had a, uh, a commute where I would walk every day, rain or shine, two and a half miles to work, two and a half miles back, or actually it was more like under three miles. And I was just devouring podcasts and uh, audiobooks, and and I can't remember what the what the genesis was, but for some reason you said Bourdain had come up in conversation, and I was like, all right, screw it. I'll, I bought a uh, um, Kitchen Confidential the audiobook, which is read by him, mm-hmm. and like in the first chapter i was like oh yeah this is good this is great this is really good because i was i was fascinated i think by three things i was fascinated by the cadence of his storytelling and it was almost textbook and it turns out that he'd had writing lessons right he'd taken a couple of writing classes before writing the full version of kitchen confidential uh and and like the the rule of threes like that was he still he did that right up until the last piece of content he ever produced it was always the rule of threes which is you know the backbone of any good writing i liked the storytelling i liked the cadence of the storytelling i liked because i just invested in a restaurant at the time i liked hearing about the uh the untold underbelly of of the food world of the restaurant business and I, I, I absolutely loved it. And from then on, I consumed more of his written content. So the next thing, I got Medium Raw straight away, which is sort of more of a collection of essays. But I loved, I loved it because I think also because I agreed with him on so much I, uh, uh, of of travel, of food, of people's ability to cook is an, an important thing. Uh, the people that he championed, the people that he chastised. Generally, I agreed with him on on pretty much everything except for two major topics, which we can talk about later, which which are just so inconsequential, but they're they're funny and to, to talk about. And then I started watching some of the content, but I was much slower to get into that. I think because uh, I didn't have time to sit down and watch an hour hour long show. But as I was starting to toy with the idea of attaché. I went and, you know, all travel content was crap. It was the BBC travel show, which was sort of octanagerians on a beach in, in like brochureware content nonsense. And then I saw, I think I actually started with Parts Unknown and then went back to No Reservations. But I was like, oh my God, this is actual travel content. This is real places and cities. And of course, uh, I think I mentioned this in the post you reference, Hong Kong is the is the the yardstick by which I measure all travel content. If, mm-hmm. if it's because I think I'm very protective of Hong Kong and I think there's a lot to get wrong and there's a lot of, of touristy traps that one can fall into and then, and he nailed it. Uh, and I thought, okay, well I need to go back and watch basically everything. And I did. I, I, I didn't know that you started sort of with the parts unknown and sort of, and sort of work backwards. It kind of, colors your opinion about a lot about what he wrote about in the essay form stuff especially like medium war where he does dive into sort of the world of trying to get good content created in the american media stream it's 
Yeah, and you can see that in the, in the, in the content that he, he created. Um, for those who have been living under a rock and don't know what Kitchen Confidential is, the quick synopsis is uh, career chef uh, Bourdain, um, he was not famous at the time, writes uh, a memoir basically about what it's like to work in some of the highest pressure not necessarily good restaurants uh, in New York in the 70s and 80s and the trials and tribulations that went along with that from massive amounts of drug abuse to running in with organized crime to why you should never order fish on a Thursday. And it really sort of, you know, broke, uh, blew the lid off of the difference between um, the world that we live in as the consumer and the world that, uh, you know, he lived in in, in the chef world uh, or the cook world, um, you know, inhabits. And I, I sort of wrote down a quick, you know, uh, paragraph on my thoughts on sort of the impact that this had to me. And so, uh, you know, restaurants are, are a bipolar world separated by an ever swinging door. Um, the white tablecloths, the quiet clinking of glassware and the restrained consideration of waitstaff sits adjacent to the fire and fury of a professional kitchen. The heat, noise, pain, and utter disdain for those who sit five feet away. I used to want to be on this frenetic side of the equation. I romanticized it. To me, it was the purest expression of where I could embrace my meager knife skills. Um, I used to think I would do this for the rest of my life. I wanted to be in a professional chef, a professional cook. And then I realized that I wanted a family and I had problems with authority. So this was not going to work well. And I'd be in, in, in true, in, in true, you know, hard hitting, cold truth that Bourdain laid down. I'd be making demi-glass for the next 10 years of my life. And that's all I'd be doing. So he stopped me from not being able to truly love what I loved about food while opening a lid on a world that I never knew. That's it's lovely. That's very well put as well. And I think you're absolutely right. I think what we knew about, especially even not just fine dining, but just higher end dining was all of that. It was the, it was the white tablecloths. It was the polished silverware. It was what we experienced as consumers because the other side of it, the fire and fury that you mentioned was unattractive and unassuming. And, you know, you don't want to know how sausage is made type of thing. But it turns out that we all really, really wanted to know how sausage was made. And it was very compelling content. Yeah, I truly believe that we should have blown the lid off this a long time ago because there are so many people that, from his books, from you know a lot of other media, are stunning at what they do, but may have been turned away because they think, oh, cooking is not for me. It's not the world I'm into. It's it's you know highfalutin, whatever. And really, you know, as Bourdain puts it, you know, it's a combination of the mentally unwell, the criminally insane, and the drug-addled. It's 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 something that if I know people in my life who had if they had the insight or opportunity to go into the cook world or into the into the culinary world, they should have. And now they're struggling to do nine to fives. If we knew about it, it you know, I, I just feel like it, he did a lot to sort of remove some stigmas on both sides. Yeah, a absolutely. And I think, as you say, rem remove the glamour that one always associated with the with the pristine chef's jacket and the silly hat and all that, and realize that it was, you know, rum buggery and the lash for ten years before you actually, you know, could even consider making a name for yourself. But I think he he always said that he was a very mediocre cook. Uh, and clearly, you know, his, his 
writing was his was his real gift. And I don't think anybody's actually gone back and done a what's it like now, except for him in terms of the modern eating, except maybe David Chang. Yeah, absolutely. And and who was the executive producer on all of David Chang's shows? Well, that's another thing. That's another thing that I think, you know, peripherally or ancillarily, is that a word? It is not. <laughs> uh, that he, Bourdain did that I'm so grateful for is that he introduced me to all of these people that I had no access to and no idea existed. And David Chang being being one of the, and of course, by, by association, Peter Meehan as well, who is a fantastic writer. Who's a New York Times food critic for a while and and is co-producer of uh, uh, Chang's latest show that we talked about a few episodes ago, you know and and you know there's there's so many other people that he sort of he sort of championed as well, uh, not least of which is Eric Repair, who was a phenomenal chef, three Michelin star, many Michelin stars, <laughs> but also sort of dragged him kicking and screaming into the spotlight as well, saying you know this this guy is a uh, is a force for good in the in the in the culinary world when which is a world filled with so many disgusting people yeah and so i want to touch upon that the the writing versus the video content a little bit deeper so did you ever read i'm sure you did but did you read and watch a cook's tour i i neither read nor i watched one episode of cook's tour and it was cringy awfulness uh it was the episode in london actually and it was him and Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. Um, did you read the book? I did not read the book either. Go read the book. Okay. So the this perfectly summed up the the, the media escape at the time. Uh, so after Bourdain, the Kitchen Confidential blew up. Um, cooking Channel slash Food Network, which is sort of the one and the same, uh, basically said, "Hey, do you want to do a show for us?" And for those who don't live in America or have access to uh, Food Network, um, it's not all reality cupcake challenges it used to be more sort of like here's what you can do in this city and it was all terrible so Bourdain sort of like signed his soul away a little bit to see if he could get out of the 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 drudgery of, of cooking on the on the line and he you could see he was bursting at the seams to make real good content that you know you could see in his writing but it was half hour so 22 minutes in in, uh, american language shows that were synthetically dull and you know terribly edited with star wipes and you know that fun stuff and it just was not great content but juxtaposed to this he wrote a book at the same time about all the places they went to london portugal vietnam cambodia you know, and you read that and it's like, there's a section I was trying to find before the episode we recorded, but I couldn't find it. But it's the opening of a chapter and he's in, I'm 90% I was sure it was Cambodia in the middle of nowhere. And he's just sitting on a, you know, in, in the middle of the countryside, just, you know, romanticizing the, the, the lights of the three or four scooters going by while eating something he's never had before and listening to sounds he's never experienced before and feeling absolutely lost and found at the same time. And they talk about like how they had to bribe the local militia to get into places and, you know, drinking heart, uh, uh, cobra heart and, you know, stuff that was not for the tourists, which has now become. This was all left on the editing room floor because mom and pop Nebraska don't want to hear about this. Yeah. And he ranted about that in Medium Raw, um, both for the Food Network and a little bit less with the with the travel channel but i mean he he gave the food network both barrels 
of course they're owned by the same company now so yeah uh i don't even i yeah i don't know when that when that happened but having been peripherally involved in that world uh when i read those words it was massively vindicating and also hugely frustrating as well i'm not even going to go into that i think those of you that know me well know what i'm talking about <laughs> but there's an alex hunter secret project that never saw the light of day that was a horrendous waste of six months of my life um but but i think one of the other things that he talked about and you're right i mean he, that that's come up in 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 medium raw but it's also come up in a lot of other interviews where he talked about their reticence they wanted him to do a bunch of america they wanted him to basically do somewhere between adam richman and guy fieri um which was go around america and find great food and talk about it on camera enthusiastically and don't talk about politics or anything like that when even as no reservations became such a big hit for the travel channel they kept pulling him back to the U.S. saying, we stopped going to places that no one's ever heard of. And he's like, that's the whole point. And when CNN came along and said, you do what you want, uh, and it, it then became the no- number one rated show on CNN as a network because yeah. they had that freedom to tell the stories. And I think that's, that, that type of content is what resonated with me. You know, food, food I lo- obviously love food, but food and travel – uh, food as a platform for telling the stories about people. Food, food as the as the intermediary between two very different or multiple sets of different people, almost as the um, I don't know, the peace pipe, if you will. I don't, is that politically correct? They did that peace pipe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. I think that was it. That was the thing. That's like you know you're 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 breaking bread, you're sharing you're sharing wine, and you're you're discussing very very difficult topics. In in some instances, that literally got people killed, if not thrown in jail. Yeah, um, people that the he Iran interviewed episode. in Moscow were yeah, people that he in Moscow were then killed. Uh, I'm not suggesting that they were killed because they were on the show, but I can't imagine it helped. And then, of course, as you say, the the chap in Iran who was jailed for six years, not long after uh, the, that that interview took place. But I think that's that's what inspired me. And then, you know, it just it just kind of snowballed from there but i think th- there was times where he he was he stuck to his principles which is a, a mixed blessing at best which he discussed in medium raw you know not taking the circulon endorsement deal when the because he didn't use that product and didn't think it was very good when people like is it emerald lagasse yeah emerald lagasse rachel ray you know any of them. emery lagasse and uh who's the big ginger dude that was on mario that mario but yeah yeah so you know, we'll set aside all the all of the disgusting things that he's now been revealed to do. But you know, them turning to him and saying, "Look, man, you've got mouths to feed, a mortgage to pay. You can't be picky about that." I think he was he got better and better at picking his battles. Uh, and when content was was involved, he he rarely pulled punches. Yeah, you knew. So Alex and I have had this private theory about one of his shorter run series for a while now the layovers uh or the layover show um that was the last thing he did for travel channel before jumping ship to cnn and and your theory was uh he knew he was on the way out so how can he screw uh travel channel out of as much money as possible by letting him stay yeah, his favorite forgotten about favorite that. hotels around the world yeah i mean the content's fine and it's fun but it's just like, all right, here's some suggestions on hotels that you can stay at. I'm staying at the Four Seasons. It was very lightweight. It was very lightweight. And funnily enough, it actually came out when we were when we were starting Attaché. 
uh, and I, so I, I studied it carefully, but it was, I think it really was him saying, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to my favorite cities for a few days. I'm going to get drunk with my friends and you're going to pay me a hundred grand an episode to do it. Yep. Pretty much. That's, that's living the life. It, you know, so much of the, of parts unknown is voiceover, right? He, he writes these beautifully eloquent stories narratives uh about these places narratives yeah i don't i don't think there's maybe even three or four ptcs i don't think he just he just doesn't do that and of course the videography uh and just the the creative side of of uh, of parts unknown is breathtaking you know peabody and emmy award-winning yeah uh, breathtaking for those who don't know ptcs are when someone's talking directly to the camera yeah he just didn't do that the layover was not nearly as uh, strikingly beautiful as Parts Unknown, even though I think it might have been the same production company. But no, it's zero it was zero. He's been using them since Travel Channel. But I don't know if it was Zach Zamboni who was the DP for most of Parts Unknown. I don't think it is, but it was clearly phoned in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but this is like if you've read his early stuff and known his 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 early life, you know if someone is going to give him that opportunity, he's going to take it with both hands. If you are not going to let him do what he wants to do, and and fair play to him, he realized you know CNN's probably not going to pay him as much as he could get from the Food Network or Travel Channel, Channel sponsors because CNN has very very strict rules around who can endorse their stuff. He put the art over the potential food to Travel Channel tour that would and crews that would probably pay millions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, that sort of immediately put him out there as a, a as a rabble rouser uh, who is perfectly willing to bite the hand that feeds him on artistic principle alone, which again is a, is a double-edged sword, but kudos for him. He's, he had creative chops and creative integrity, which was admirable. Yeah, absolutely. And I, so, you know, obviously Alex and I have talked for, ad nauseum in every single piece of content we've ever created, probably about Bourdain referenced in every episode and shows how much he, he meant to us. And Alex alluded to earlier in the episode that everybody from Barack Obama to whoever, you know, else leader in the world had mentioned him and his influence. But within his own industry, because a lot of people who do these exposés get ostracized from the industries that they came from because it's like, hey, dude, what are you doing? You're telling everyone our secrets. He was still absolutely adored by the the industry, the food, you know, f- food writing through to the actual guys on the line making the food. Uh, and I had a chance to catch up with uh, a friend of mine, um, Kevin Sanchimino, whose family owns um, Swan Oyster Depot here in San Francisco, which if you know any of uh, Bourdain's episodes or just traveling in San Francisco is one of his favorite places on earth. So I caught up with Kevin and he was able to get, share some, some really interesting uh, memories of, uh, about Tony Bourdain. When Tony first started coming into Swan, I was either in high school or had just gone uh, to college. So it was probably around 18 or 20 years ago. And the way my dad and uncle tell the story is he was waiting out in front of the store smoking a cigarette at 6 o'clock in the morning before they even got to work. And he comes up to him and introduces himself and says, Hi, I, I seriously doubt any of you guys know who I am, but... My name's Tony Bourdain, and I'd like to come back, if you're willing, and do a show tomorrow. And uh, my dad and uncle said, absolutely. He said, what time should I be here? They said, uh, this time would be perfect. So they told him to come back at, you know, 6.15 in the morning. 
My dad goes home. He tells my mom and my sister and us, he says, yeah, we got this guy coming in tomorrow to do a TV show. And uh, this is his name. And my sister goes, what? Anthony Bourdain's coming in your place tomorrow? My sister was probably like 12 at the time. She runs upstairs, grabs, I can't remember whether it was Kitchen Confidential or No Reservation. She might have had both of his books at the time. But she brings him down and goes, would you mind having him sign one of my books? And I goes, you've heard of this guy before? And she <laughs> said, yeah, Dad, he's like one of the premier food experts, you know, a, you know, a, a culinary expert the world over. So my dad, sure enough, goes and uh, brings it in. He, he Obviously, he's got no problem signing it. Um, comes back the next day, and uh, my dad and uncles go, man, he was, he was sitting at the counter drinking beer, uh, eating everything he put in front of him at, at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, and they were just, you know, impressed with it, like, wow, here's a, here's a TV guy who's willing to get up at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, crack a dawn, and come and eat, you know, more or less on our schedule when we tell them beer. You know, we respect that right off the bat. He'd probably been in our place at least a dozen times over the years. He used to come in without cameras sometimes. He would just, just pop in. And, uh, you know, that was really kind of one of the one of the coolest things just about Tony Bourdain and the, the, you know, life that he lived and the kind of the enigma that he was was that you never knew where he was going to be, like, any any bar going food loving person could easily imagine themselves sitting at a bar and this guy pulling up and sitting next to you because that's the kind of thing he did you know he he would you know just walk into a random place sit down camera or no camera anywhere in the world and you know the next thing you know you're sitting there sharing beers or having a meal with the culinary you know bar food expert of the world so that was, yeah. that was kind of one of the coolest things to me about the guy. That you know, he'd, he'd walk in sometimes just out of nowhere. Nobody knows he's in San Francisco. Walks in the front door, waits in line for 20 minutes, and then just shoots the breeze with the people he's sitting next to. No cameras, awesome. no nothing. That's amazing. That's And actually, that, that place, which I've never been to, shamefully, pops up in not not just one of the of his shows, but I think a, quite a few. Yeah. Yeah, being Quite back to, I mean, uh, the the original reference that that Kevin's talking about uh, in our chat there was in regards to a cook's tour. So that's how far it, go, it goes back to. And then he's done it in he went there in the layovers, and I'm ninety percent sure he did it also in no reservations. But you know, he would go there if he was just writing an article while living in San sorry while in San Francisco, or just being as you heard, just like a regular dude. And that's the thing that Kevin really wanted to make you know apparent was like he was such a you know, fan of what they did, but never expected, you know, celebrity treatment. And he was one of the people he didn't like to be, you know, second, you know, uh, singled out. And so he commanded the respect of those who, you know, he was trying to interview or he was trying to, you know, highlight what they do. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I love the fact that his 12-year-old sister had a copy of, of uh, Kitchen Confidential. I don't know. I don't care what you say. That's good parenting right there. Yeah, it is. I, I, it is, and I think one of the essays in Medium Raw is about uh, uh, raising his daughter to be able to not just appreciate food, but you know, use chopsticks and and travel and and 
you know, feel out of her comfort zone in terms of smells and sights and sounds and tastes and all of that. But also, people's ability to cook for themselves, which you never hear about. And, and, you know, not just about uh, following a recipe to the letter, but also you should be able to roast a chicken. You should be able to, 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 to feed your... Well, actually, what was the quote? You should learn how to make an omelette about the same time you learn how to fuck. <laughs> to get that one out. <laughs> no, I like that. We're going to keep that. But uh, I like this one too. Basic cooking skills are a virtue. The ability to feed yourself and a few others with proficiency should be taught to every young man and woman as a fundamental skill. It's as vital to growing up as learning to wipe one's own ass, cross the street by oneself, or be trusted with money. And I absolutely agree with that because I didn't, I'm not like you. I didn't learn how to cook properly until well into my thirties. And even then that's, you know, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still in the kind of the very, very elementary stages of doing it, but it really does help a lot. Interestingly, in that same chapter surfaces one of the topics where he and I disagree and that's on the golden arches. He hates, hates. McDonald's with a passion and thinks that Ronald McDonald should be tried for war crimes. I don't, I don't share that view. I'm not an advocate of, of, of gorging oneself on McDonald's, but I like a Big Mac. I reference it in my show because, uh, and I get an unbelievable amount of shit for it from food snobs. What I think, and actually what, what he, what he crystallized in a really reasonably recent article was the, reliance on fast food and what it's done to America's uh, overall health um, as an industry is what gets his goat yeah. so much. And he's, and he's, I, and I get that. I yeah. get that. He's gone. I mean, but I don't hate McDonald's. I mean, the other, yeah, I understand that, but his thing is like one of his biggest beefs and like, not like throwing bows kind of thing, but like Alice Waters, he talks about Alice Waters, a lot in in yeah. medium raw in medium and raw. for everything that she has done she is a wonderful proponent or founder or pioneer of the slow food mo- movement you know based out of out of here California Berkeley and to Bourdain's point the richest suburb in the entire country that she thinks that no one should have to eat fast food and that uh, you know everyone should be able to dig their own allotments and grow their own vegetables while she doesn't know is that in, in most major cities that's that's illegal to do you know there's people being arrested who have taken um you know the grass medians in front of their houses and turned them into vegetable patches people are getting yeah. arrested for doing that and so she's she his point was that she's so out of touch with what's going on in the rest of America and he points out that people are going to Popeye's chicken for their chicken you know one piece and a biscuit for 249 not because it's the best chicken in the world it's because they can afford it and like he he always bristled at pomposity and uh, and as you said uh, being out of touch with with regular people which is something that he always prided himself in and and I think that that's absolutely right which is in conflict with, with this position on on fast food but it's I, I you know I absolutely but get I, it. I, I think that's it, why he hated McDonald's because they forced people into these positions yeah no 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 I get I, I, I get it and I, I I agree with with that at a sort of the the fast food industrial complex side of things but i you know i think why i feel and i i've never reacted to a celebrity death before i i just you know there there might as well be in a fairy tale warp as far as i'm concerned because i have no connection to them perhaps i appreciate a movie they made or something like that but the reason why i think 
I still feel uh, at such a loss uh, at his passing is because not only did I appreciate and admire the content that he created, I also agreed with him on so many things. And it's really satisfying when you have someone in a not leadership role, but position of influence, you know, someone who, with, 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 with wisdom and with, uh, you know, who is respected, who is able to articulate something that you feel infinitely better. And when you read it or hear it or see it and you go, yes, finally, someone is saying what I've tried to say all along. And that for me happened less with food, Although it actually, uh, funnily enough, it made me realize how important food is. It gave me the building blocks to come to that decision on my, myself. But in terms of travel, the yeah. thing that he talked about, rigidness and itinerary, there's something that's always made me bristle about people go who have these itineraries planned for whole days and their whole trip. I'm like, Why? That serendipity is the best way to discover anything and the best way to have travel. And he he had this quote about, uh, well, I won't read the whole thing. Oh, actually, I will read it. So I'm a big believer that you're never going to find perfect city travel experience with a perfect meal without a constant willingness to experience a bad one. I.e., it's okay to have a shitty meal and then discover a great meal. But you're never going to do that if you only go to TGI Fridays and Planet Hollywood. You're never, ever going to have that. And I think, you know, so the, the quote continues, letting the happy accident happen is what a lot of vacation itineraries miss, I think. And I'm always trying to push people to allow those things to happen rather than stick to some rigid itinerary. I've believed that for the last 10 years. I wasn't always like that. And I, that's, for me, the biggest loss when you don't have that sort of philosophical guiding star to go, am I right in here or am I just being an asshole? I 100% agree. I think that doubling down on your point of like the guiding star, I, I, I this is why I believe so much like in the arts and, and, and sort of the creative world. Very People, filmmakers, writers, photographers, artists, whatever, they are special because they can, they can describe – and elaborate and uh, see something in the world that we may be able to feel, but don't have the ability to articulate. Beautifully put. And I think that's so. That's what he was so good at. And it, the writing was accessible. It, it was pithy. The filmmaking told stories of people that you could immediately connect with, even if you had literally nothing in common with them. So there's one other quote, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's basically talking about Travel in general as, you know, travel isn't always going to be easy. It's not always going to be uh, fun. It may even break you, but you need to have that experience to like feel like why we like, you know, heartbreak songs. It's because you, you feel the, 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 the true essence of where you are or what happened. Like I can tell you, you know, some of my favorite experiences are like when I'm in the middle of nowhere in Australia and a bus broke down and I'm sitting on the side of the road thinking, how the hell am I going to get out of this kind of situation? Like those I remember and they, they give me a true sense of, of life that is not sanitized or, or, or easy. And, and I think the biggest thing that Bourdain taught me, and I'm just, I'm literally just staring at my hands right now is I'm cut right now. I'm covered in, Nick's scars, I've got a massive burn welt on my hand from cooking. 
And I see these as points of pride because they show me my mistakes. They show me what I learned from making something good. And that is, I, I want to say, tragically to the end, what he tried to do. He was like, I need to feel this world. And that's what he did. And he need, I need to tell people how to feel this world. I don't think we can we can summarize that any better. I think that's probably a good point to to end this on this this tribute episode. And I you know I think it's you know, this isn't going to happen again, folks. <laughs> uh, this <laughs> I think this is a reflection of how important uh, Anthony Bourdain was personally, professionally, creatively to both of us. As as Will said, Attaché would absolutely not exist. If if I hadn't stumbled across, actually, thank you to to Will for for pointing us in that direction. And everything, every episode that I wrote for, I held up against that lens, going, you know, we aspire to be this. It's you know, it's it's some like backyard filmmaker looking at Scorsese and going, I want to be like that one day. When I grow up, I want to be Anthony Bourdain. It wasn't trying to pastiche or mimic or copy it was just you know maybe one day in 20 years if we try hard enough we could do something as good as that and we can get people to stop going to disneyland every vacation and actually explore what is a very big world we love to say oh it's a really small world it's not it's huge if i and will and anybody else that's ever created or posted a picture on instagram or tweeted about travel can get somebody else to go maybe i won't go to disneyland or maybe i won't go on that stupid fucking cruise maybe i'll go to somewhere i've never been before and eat something i've never eaten before with somebody who i've got nothing in common with then i think we and much more importantly he has done his job <laughs>